Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. I'd like to begin with a quick overview of the difference between case laws and apodictic law. Uh, knowing the difference between case law and apodictic law um, f- helps us form um, a, a, an understanding and a context, a, a framework by which we can understand and apply God's law in a more um, faithful way. Apodictic laws are commandments that express universal edicts. Uh, they are broad and general in their scope because they're foundational expressions of God's law. The verbs in apodictic law are typically in the imperative mood and the pronouns are usually in the second person. So a typical apodictic law will take the form of you shall or you shall not do such and such. Each of the 10 commandments is an apodictic law. Each one is a broad and universal edict from God. You shall, not, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. You say, well, where's the second person pronoun in there? It's inherent in the verb in, in Hebrew. The verb itself is in second person. The, the implication is you shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. And then this brings us right up to our sermon text, which is the Eighth Commandment, which is an apodictic law. Notice the broad and general scope of the commandment. You shall not steal. Because apodictic laws are broad and general, they rarely define the details for how that law should be applied to different circumstances and different situations. For example, our sermon text uh, doesn't tell us anything about how this law should be enforced when it's violated. What's the penalty for stealing? Is stealing a capital crime? Should convicted thieves be put to death? Or is there a different penalty? Should the thieves have their hands cut off? Should they be put in prison? Should they pay a financial penalty? And if so, how much should they pay and who should the payment go to? These are the type of details case laws provide. Case laws are the application of apodictic law to specific circumstances. Or we might say case laws are the application of apodictic laws to specific cases. It's important that we understand, therefore, that case laws are not new laws. Uh, Rather, they're the application of apodictic law. It's just a reiteration of the apodictic law, which means case laws are God's direction on how to apply apodictic law to specific circumstances. Case laws, therefore, um, are typically, they typically take the form of if this, then that, or when this happens, then that should happen. The verbs in case law are often in the de- declarative mood, and the pronouns are often in the third person. 
Let me show you what I mean. We've already acknowledged that our sermon text in Exodus, uh, from Exodus 20, verse 15, is an apodictic law. It's a universal prohibition. You shall not steal. Now, two chapters later, in Exodus 22, God gives some case laws that describe how to apply this eighth commandment. Exodus 21 22 verse 1 reads, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. All right, this case law tells us um, how to apply the Eighth Commandment to situations where a man steals an animal and then slaughters it or sells it. In other words, it tells us how, um, it tells us what to do when a man gets caught stealing an animal, but no longer has the animal in his possession. A few verses later, we read a similar law, only in this case, the, the thief still has the animal in his possession. Look at verse four. If the theft is, um, if the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it's an ox or a donkey or sheep, he shall restore double. So between these, these two case laws, we learn at least five things about how to apply the Eighth Commandment to situations where property is stolen. First, we learn that God sanctions and upholds the ownership of private property, and he requires us to respect and preserve the property that other people have acquired. Second, we learn that the person who steals the private property of another person is required to make restitution. He's required to make restitution. The penalty for thievery is not imprisonment. It's not cutting off the thief's hand. It's not putting the thief to death. It's restitution. Third, we learned that the restitution needs to be paid to the victim of the theft. It's not paid to the civil government. It's not put in a community fund. Is not given to the person who lands on free parking. It's paid to the victim, to the person who suffered the loss because of the theft. Fourth, we learn that the amount of restitution is calculated according to a consideration of the loss suffered by the victim. For example, uh, the case law in Exodus 22.4 tells us that if the thief still has a stolen animal in his, in his possession, then he needs to make double restitution to the victim. In other words, the thief needs to enrich the victim by the same amount that he tried to deprive the victim. That's the penalty. And so the thief, uh, who, if, if the thief stole an animal that's worth $1,000, not only does he need to give that animal back to its rightful owner, but he also needs to give that rightful owner another $1,000. Double restitution is the baseline penalty for uh, property theft throughout the word of God. It's the, it's the default. There are exceptions, as we've already seen, but double restitution is the, the baseline default uh, penalty for property theft throughout the Word of God. And we see this in just a few verses later in Exodus 22, verse 7. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep 
and it is stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. But double restitution is only the penalty if the thief is able to return the property that was stolen. If the thief is no longer in possession of the stolen property, then the amount of restitution is higher. In Exodus 22, verse 1, we see that the restitution is either four times the value of the animal or five times the value of the animal, depending on whether it was a sheep or an ox. And why is the restitution so much higher if the thief um, no longer has possession of the animal? And, And why is there a different multiplier between a sheep and an ox? Well, because God's penal sanctions are righteous and just. God doesn't just calculate the market value of the stolen animal. He also considers the victim's loss of production incurred by the theft. And God also considers the time, effort, and social, uh, special skills it, it takes um, for the victim to train uh, a replacement animal to do the work that his stolen animal was already trained to do. And that's why there's a different multiplier um, for the restitution made for a sheep and an oxen. The, the victimized farmer, the one who had his animal stolen, is going to suffer a greater loss of production when his ox is stolen than when his sheep is stolen. Why? Because the two animals have different functions. Sheep provide meat and wool. The ox pulls the plow. The, the reason of a farmer would own an ox is so that the ox can perform much of the heavy labor on the farm. So uh, when a man's ox is stolen, his whole farming operation is compromised. Moreover, training an ox is, uh, to work on a farm is, is, is very difficult, more training than a sheep. Sheep don't need much training. They basically graze in the field until the time they need to be sheared or butchered, and, and then that's it. Um, oxen, however, they need to learn to carry a yoke. The, the ox needs to learn to work on a team with other oxen. Ox need to learn to respond to the farmer's voice commands. Ox need to be disciplined. So the investment of time and specialized skills required to train a new ox is going to be much greater than it is for a sheep. And God's righteous jurisprudence takes this into consideration when calculating the restitution that the thief must make. So a sheep is fourfold restitution and an ox is fivefold. And this brings us to the, the fifth thing that we learn from these case laws, which is God's system of justice is not excessively punitive. God's system of justice is not excessively punitive. The thief is always held responsible for the impact of his crime, but the penalty is never more severe than what justice demands. In other words, the penalty fits the crime. It's not too light and it's not too severe. Contrast this with other forms of jurisprudence, with man's forms of jurisprudence. Look at countries like Pakistan, or Somalia, or Nigeria, or Morocco, or any other Islamic country, uh, and you'll see that um, their penal system is based upon the Quran. Uh, Do you know what the Quran says to do to thieves? It says, and I quote, as to the thief, male or female, cut off his or her hands, a punishment by way of example from Allah 
for their crime and the law is exalted in power. This is what the Eighth Eighth Amendment to the Bill of, of Rights calls cruel and unusual punishment. Not that the Eighth Amendment is what defines righteous jurisprudence for us, but rather uh, the Eighth Amendment is a candid recognition that human authorities are capable of inflicting cruel and unusual punishment upon criminals. Uh, and what I just read from the Quran is, is an example of how fallen man has sinful tendencies towards cruelty and towards excessively harsh and abusive punishment. But that's not just. That's not righteous. You don't amputate a person's hand because he stole a candy bar. Nor do you cut off a foot, uh, the slave of a foot, uh, the foot of a slave, because he tried to run away. God requires punishment to fit the crime. And so his penal sanctions always achieve the right balance. They're not too lenient, they're not too harsh, they're always right, right and they're always just. And this is, this is not to say that God never enforces severe penalties, such as a death penalty, because we know he does. But the penalty always matches the severity of the crime. The only, the only form of theft that God says to punish with death is man theft, or what we call kidnapping and human trafficking. But property theft is always penalized by requiring the thief to make restitution. The American jurisprudence system is one of the, the best man-made law codes in, the, in operation today, but it's certainly not perfect. There's a lot of room for improvement. Uh, this is noticeably true in the way we deal with theft, which is germane to our sermon text. Oh, we, should, we should apply the principles of the case laws in Exodus 22 to our modern penal code. Um, If a thief steals a car, he should make restitution for the theft. How much restitution? Well, that depends. Uh, If the car is still in his possession and it's in the same condition as when he stole it, then he needs to make twofold restitution. He needs, uh, you know, he, he needs to return the car in its same condition to the rightful owner and then he needs to give the owner an additional sum of money, which is equal to the value of the car. So if the car was worth $30,000, he returns the car and he gives the owner another $30,000. But if the thief sold the car or crashed the car or dismantled the car, then the thief needs to make fourfold or fivefold restitution. In this case, we apply the principle of the sheep and the ox. If the stolen vehicle was a work truck, outfitted with special gear and ladder racks and toolboxes, then we'd treat it as if it were the theft of an ox. The victim will suffer, the, you know, the victim will have suffered a loss of income when his work truck was stolen, and so he needs to be compensated for that. And, if, and it's gonna take him some time to, um, an effort, and of course money, to outfit the new truck the way that the stolen truck was outfitted. And so the thief will need to make fivefold restitution for having stolen a work truck. But if the stolen vehicle was the typical family car used only for going to the grocery store and bringing the kids to the soccer game, then that's going to be easier to replace. In that case, we'll treat it like the theft of a sheep. 
the thief will make fourfold restitution based upon the value of the car. When it comes to dealing with property theft, one of the glaring discrepancies between God's law and the, the law of our land is that we don't require restitution. Um, a man steals a car, dismantles it in a chop shop, gets caught, and what happens to him? Well, he goes to prison, presumably. He serves time, and when he gets out, we're told that he paid his debt to society. What is that? What does it even mean to say that a criminal has paid his debt to society? How did he incur a debt to society? Uh, you might argue, well, it was the, the criminal processing you know, system, um, the court system. You know, he, he owes because of the way that um, his crime had to be adjudicated. Well, there, there is that, but that's secondary to the real issue. Um, he did not incur a debt to society. His debt is to the person he stole the car from. That's who his debt is to. And how does spending a couple years in prison pay anything to society or the victim of the theft? The truth is that his incarceration is a burden to society. Society is now forced to house the criminal, feed the criminal, clothe the criminal, provide medical care for the criminal. That's not paying a debt to society. That's racking up a debt to society. Meanwhile, the victim of the theft is, is without a car or his company is without a work truck. And the only way he's going to get a car or work truck is, to, is if he forks out the money to purchase a new one. But the question we really need to be asking is why does this financial burden fall on the victim? Why should this financial burden fall on the victim? Why doesn't the thief bear that burden? Wouldn't that be a more just way of dealing with it? Somebody will say, well, that's what insurance is for. And the insurance company should replace the vehicle. Uh, that's not a just resolution to the situation either. That's the situation we have because of the problem we created by not following God's principles of law. Just pause to think about it for a second. Because our penal system does not require thieves to make restitution for thievery, millions and millions of people are put in a position where they need to risk experiencing a total loss of the vehicle by not having insurance, or they need to purchase an insurance policy that will cover the replacement of their vehicle should it get stolen. But this is not a just solution because it puts a burden on the victim. It puts a burden and responsibility on the victim. Or better put, it puts the burden on people who are not even victims of theft. If you don't want to risk the total loss of your vehicle, then you need to proactively purchase an insurance policy before your car ever gets stolen. You can't come and do it afterwards. You gotta be forward thinking, proactive in, in purchasing a policy before your car gets stolen. And then you need to bear the financial burden of sustaining that policy year after year, hoping you'll never have to use it. How is that just? That's victimizing people who are not even victims of theft. Because insurance companies are for-profit businesses that make payouts to people who are victims of theft, 
they do that by, by collecting premiums from people who are not victims of theft. So the reality is that everybody who purchase, purchases an insurance policy is becoming a victim of theft, is paying for the, the, the restitution that was supposed to be made by the criminal. Think about that the next time you pay your, your car insurance premium. You're paying that premium because our penal system won't require the thief to make restitution. That's why you're making that payment. And consequently, the burden has shifted to you. You, along with millions of other policyholders, are paying the restitution that the thief is supposed to pay. If our nation had a penal system that adopted and enforced the principles of restitution spelled out in Exodus 22, then we would have a more just way of dealing with theft. Does this highlight for you the deficiencies of man's laws? And does it show you the wisdom and righteousness of God's laws? Now you might be wondering, how's the thief gonna make restitution if he doesn't have the money to pay for it? Good question. Um, If he owns assets like a house or he has his own car or a retirement account, then those assets um, need to be liquefied in order that he can make restitution for his crime. And if the thief doesn't have enough assets to cover the full restitution, or if he has zero assets and cannot make any payments for restitution, then God's law has a provision for this as well. In Exodus 22, verse 3, um, which is conveniently sandwiched between uh, two of the case laws we've already looked at, God tells us, he, referring to the thief, he should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So if the thief can't come up with the resources to make full restitution, then he gets sold as an indentured slave and the money for his purchase goes to the victim. And even here, we see God's righteousness and mercy, even mercy upon the criminal. God gave laws requiring fair and humane treatment of indentured slaves so that they would be protected against abuse. Moreover, Exodus 21 verse two says that that they're to be set free after six years of indentured service. So six years is as much as, is, is the longest that they can possibly be held uh, in, in, as a slave. Now many Americans, if we were to propose this as an alternative to our current system, many Americans would revolt at the idea that a thief should be sold into slavery to satisfy the penalty for his crime. But let's think about this for a second. How is six years of indentured servitude any worse than being sent to prison for six years? Americans generally agree that that criminals need to go to prison, but that's only because we've been conditioned to accept that as a proper punishment or proper penalty for, for crime. If you contrast the American prison system with God's system of indentured servitude, you'll see some very stark differences. We've already identified uh, the first difference. The, the, with the prison system, the victim is not compensated for his losses. With indentured servitude, restitution is made. So the victim receives con- compensation. 
And we've already explored even the second reason. Um, in the prison system, the thief has no ability to be a productive member of society. Rather, he becomes a burden to society. With indentured servitude, however, the thief works to enrich his master. And in turn, his master is able to provide food and housing and medical care for the indentured servant so that he's not a burden to society. He's taken care of under the indentured servitude um, laws that God, that God gives to masters. And then there's another consideration. In the prison system, the thief is removed from his family. If he has a wife and children, then they're on their own while the husband and, and father is in prison. With indentured servitude, the family can stay together. The man can still be a husband to his wife and a father to his children. Now, this alone is huge. I don't think I need to convince you um, that broken families lead to all sorts of social, uh, social problems. If our nation was able to righteously deal with crime in ways that kept the family, or at least a lot of families, intact, I think we'd see noticeable improvements to many of the social problems we're experiencing today. And we could go on. We could, we could uh, contrast the environment of these two different penal systems. In prison, criminals are surrounded by other criminals. It's been said that prison is like a trade school for those who want to become better criminals. But with indentured servitude, the master is able to have a more positive influence on his servants. For example, we see several instances in the New Testament where indentured servants are attending church with their masters. And if, if you read church history, in, in the first couple centuries, there, there's actually some really unique circumstances where you have an indentured servant who is accountable and responsible to his master, and yet in the church setting, that indentured servant has risen to a leadership position where he actually exercises authority over his master. That's entirely possible because this is a righteous system in which those kind of things can happen. And then there's the recidivism rates. Many criminals who are released from our American prisons end up back in prison within a short period of time. And this is directly related to the environment and the influence of peers that we've already discussed. Because our prisons are essentially a trade school for criminals, many released inmates go right back to a life of crime. But not so with indentured servitude, especially when the master is a Christian who's exerting a righteous influence over his servants. If you look at this list, it becomes pretty compelling that uh, the, the more righteous option is indentured servitude, much more so than the American prison system that we have today. But the most compelling reason, I suggest, uh, for it is, is, I should say, the most compelling reason for rejecting the American prison system is because it's an unbiblical institution. It's an unbiblical institution. Realize, God never prescribes imprisonment for crime. His method for dealing with criminals is, is really quite simple. If it's a capital crime, then the criminal is executed. If it's not a capital crime, then the criminal needs to make restitution. And if he doesn't have the resources for making restitution, then he's sold as an indentured slave, protected by God's laws for indentured slaves. 
prisons are the invention of pagans. The first mention of prisons in the Bible is Genesis 39 and 40, where we read about Joseph being thrown into the Egyptian prison with Pharaoh's butler and baker. And we also read um, of the prophet Jeremiah being put into a prison, and sometimes people might try to use this as justification for uh, the Jews having a prison system, but that's not the case. If you read if you read of that incident, um, that was a makeshift detention facility where the, the sinful and unbelieving Jews had converted the house of Jonathan, the scribe, into a place of, um, where Jeremiah could be sequestered. They, they should not have done that, and it was an unrighteous thing to have done, but it wasn't their typical way of dealing with, with um, issues. And of course, we know that the Romans had prisons because several of the apostles ended up in those prisons. But nowhere in the Bible does God ever prescribe incarceration for, as a penalty for a crime. The only form of confinement that we see in Israel are two incidents that happened when Moses was alive. One is, the first is recorded in Leviticus 24, 12. Uh, this is where the son of an Israelite woman and an Egyptian father, that, that son had blasphemed the name of the Lord and so he was placed in a temporary custody um, in order to, for the leaders to, of Israel to inquire with the Lord what they should do about the situation. Once, once they had direction, then the, the just penalty followed. And the second is very similar in Numbers 15.34. A man was picking up sticks on the Sabbath, and so they, they put him in temporary custody until they could inquire with the Lord how they should deal with him. Neither of these, these situations support the use of prisons as a penalty for crime. And all they demonstrate is that it's proper for civil authorities to temporarily hold a person until that person can stand trial for his crime. So we might say jails are biblical, prisons are not. Jails are temporary holding places until that person can, can stand trial. Prisons are, 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 are designed to be something entirely other. In Leviticus 18, verses 24 through 30, there's a strong and explicit warning from God explaining that when a society does not properly deal with sin, then the entire land becomes defiled. The entire land becomes defiled. God says that if the people as a society, as a society do not uphold his statutes and judgments, then the land will vomit out its inha- inhabitants. Pretty, pretty strong language there. And the point here is that righteousness and just penal sanctions build up a land, whereas sin and iniquity destroy a land. Which means a biblical criminal justice system is not primarily focused on restoring the individual who commits the crime, but on restoring godly order in society. Let me say that again, because this flies right in the face of, of, of what we're presently dealing with in our country. A biblical criminal justice system is not primarily focused on restoring the individual criminal to a position of being productive in society again, but rather it's intent is to restore godly order in society. And this is why when it comes to punishing capital crimes especially, you'll often read of God saying something like, you shall put away the evil from among you. Or 
so you shall put away the evil from your midst. In God's penal system, capital crimes are capital crimes because they defile the entire, entire social order. The American criminal justice system has this exactly backwards. Our primary focus is, is on the criminal. We've embraced a humanist philosophy that believes the primary role of our criminal justice system is to rehabilitate the criminal. And this is why our prisons are called correctional facilities and our prison guards are called correctional officers. The assumption is that time and secular humanist counseling programs have the ability to transform uh, the heart of a criminal so that he becomes a productive and responsible citizen. But as Christians, we know that that's not going to happen without the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we, we also know what Romans 13 says. The civil authorities are to be a terror to those who do evil. A terror. Their, God, their God-ordained role is to use the power of the sword to execute wrath upon those who practice evil. And one of the reasons our state and federal correctional facilities will never be able to accomplish heart-level transformations of criminals is because God never gave that job to the civil government. That's not the civil government's job. He gave that job to the church. And this used to be something that Christians understood. Case in point, Article 3 of Chapter 23 of the Westminster Confession of Faith says, the civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the powers of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. These are given to the church. The civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And the point the Westminster Confession is making here is the point God makes, is making in Romans 13. Civil rulers are to punish evil for the purpose of preserving a godly society. Their job is to be faithful to God's instructions by executing capital offenders and enforcing laws of restitution. It's the church that's been given the administration of the word and sacraments. It's the church that's been given the power of the keys of the kingdom. It's the church that should be ministering to criminals. It's the church that should be going to where the criminals are and and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them because the gospel and only the gospel, no secular humanist philosophy, is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. A humanist a criminal justice system will never be able to transform a person's heart. It will always fail, no matter how much money we throw at it, no matter how many psychiatrists we put in the, the, in the counseling programs, it will always fail. And this is, this is a worldview issue, brothers and sisters. This is a worldview issue. And sadly, many Americans have a worldview that's based in man's wisdom rather than God's wisdom. Many Americans are committed to the philosophies and ideologies of logical positivism, modernism, postmodernism, objectivism, pragmatism, rationalism, utilitarianism, and the list goes on and on. And yet these are the philosophies and ideologies that, that God says are vomited out of the land. He vomits these things out of the land. And the, the words of Moses that he spoke to the Israelites 3,500 years ago 
are just as applicable to us today as they were to, to the Israel back then. Leviticus 18, verses 24 through 26. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you, for the land is defiled. Therefore, I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments. Are you concerned that our land's going to vomit us out? Is there any indication that, 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 that uh, we're having a gag reflex in our land right now? We do well to observe God's laws rather than thinking that we can invent our own. The mind of man has never produced anything as righteous and just as that which comes from God. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. David writes in Psalm 19, verse eight. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Psalm 19 goes on to say. Now as we continue reading through Exodus 22, we read more case laws applying to the eighth commandment. In verse five, we read, uh, if a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over, or lets his beast loose and it feeds on another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and or his own vineyard. And we learn from this case law that when one person suffers loss of property because of another person's negligence, then that's treated as theft. Negligence is treated as theft, only not as severely. The man who, who lets his animal out did, didn't intend for the animal to graze on the other man's property, but it did. And so he has to make restitution from the best portions of his own field. And there's a similar case law in, in 22.6. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns, so that stacked grain, standing grain, or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. Once again, unintentional negligence and accidental destruction are treated as a form of theft. Exodus 22.9 pretty much sums up all private property issues. For any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, or for any kind of lost thing, which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whomever the judge condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. That's justice, brothers and sisters. That's biblical. Now, why is this such a big deal? Because restitution is a principle upon which our own salvation has been accomplished. It's the whole concept behind redemption, the kinsman redeemer, that Christ, the, the role that Christ played. But we, we find this even in a, uh, a, an unusual spot, a, a, a passage of scripture we wouldn't normally connect with making restitution and with the, with necessarily with the work of Christ. Listen to the words God tells Isaiah to speak to the children of Israel in Isaiah 40, verses one and two. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And that's not talking about punishment, that's talking about blessing. 
This is speaking about the atonement made by Jesus Christ. Sinners rightfully deserve to be sold into bondage until we pay the very last penny of restitution that we owe. In, this, in, in, in the case of our sin, it's restitution we owe to God. But Jesus, being infinite in his love, took our debt upon himself, and he became our kinsman and redeemer so that he can do for us what we can never do for ourselves. And in doing so, and here's where the, the Isaiah passage has application, Jesus made twofold restitution to the Father. He didn't only pay the penalty for our sins, but he also imputed his righteousness to us. And here we see the difference between being innocent and being righteous. Adam and Eve, when they were first created, they were innocent. They were without sin. But they were not yet righteous. Righteousness is something that needs to be earned. Had Adam and Eve persisted in doing what the Lord had required of them, then they would have earned righteousness by their obedience and the Lord would have rewarded them accordingly. But Genesis 3 tells us that they failed to remain obedient to the Lord. So instead they became sinners. And so let's think about those three categories a second. Sinners, innocent, and righteous. Three different categories or statuses that a person might be. And to use an imperfect illustration, and I, I stress that this is imperfect, but I think it, it helps make the point. Think of this as the balance in a bank account. A zero balance is the state of innocence. That's how Adam and Eve were when they were born. Their bank account had a zero balance. They weren't in a deficit, neither did they have a positive. Uh, a negative, a deficit balance would indicate sin, a positive balance would indicate righteousness. Because of the sin that we've inherited from Adam and Eve, or Adam specifically, um, as well as the sins that we commit of our own, each of us begins life not in a zero balance, but with a, a deficit balance. We're overdrawn $100 trillion. And that $100 trillion is incurring daily finance fees of several trillion dollars itself. And then, of course, the double restitution was made by Jesus Christ on behalf of his elect. He not only pays the overdrawn balance in our account, bringing us back to a zero balance of innocence, but then he takes the infinite amount of money that he has in his own personal account and he transfers that into our account. And this gives us the status of being righteous because we now have unlimited resources in our account. His moral perfection is imputed to you and me so that we are not just innocent before God, but righteous before God. And this is the double payment Jesus makes on behalf of those whom the Father loves. And this, brothers and sisters, is the gospel in which we rejoice. That's the gospel of salvation. Praise God to whom all blessings flow. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.